Hey y'all, it's K-Bird Tweets, and this is Peace, Love, and Baseball. Welcome to Peace, Love, and Baseball. I'm your host, Kaybird Tweets, and welcome in. It's good to see you again. Happy Tuesday. We're back. We made it to another Tuesday. It's a very festive week. Hey, the stove is, is really heating up now, and it's not just for the turkey, friends. Yes, my cat, he has made his journey over the river and through the woods, or rather 150 miles or so, straight down I-55 to grandmother's house and he is staying with his loving grandparents for the holiday week while we travel with our dogs to the other side of the family this week. I actually have, uh, I was joking with my husband last night that I was going to share the live feed of the Raja cam, uh, which is the camera that's like, you know, a baby monitor sort of thing or a, a nest camera like you would set up outside of your house. I was going to have the Raja cam just set up live here as a, as a live feed, but there he is. There's my guy. That's how psychotic I am about my cat. I only check it like, you know, three times an hour or so. I'm totally joking. I'm not that obsessive, mostly because my parents are taking wonderful care of him and how crazy, amazing, and neurotic is it that I have that live feed of my cat <laughs> to keep an eye on all Thanksgiving week long until we can be back together again. But honestly, truly very grateful to them for doing that. It makes our lives a little easier. Obviously, cats are not as mobile and fun to travel with, and he's a little older, so it's not great for him to stay here by himself. Anyway, we have got a very festive episode for you tonight. Uh, Thanksgiving ideas. We got to talk about the parade. Obviously, we're going to cover the notable non-tenders and free agent signings in Major League Baseball since we last met. But Let's start out with this week's report, which features what I'm reading, eating, playing, or actually what you're playing. We've got your favorite first Christmas songs to listen to this week on the report, uh, a weekly obsession, what I'm recommending and treating myself to. So let's get right into this. We're going to kind of speed through it, spend a little more time on some sections than others of the report, but it's been a few weeks since we've done this. So I'm going to start out with something that might seem a little random, but it is what I have been reading, and that is the Britney Spears memoir. Uh, it's called The Woman in Me. Now, I was never particularly a Britney Spears fan. I want to say she got super popular when I was in like fourth, fifth grade, and obviously like all through high school and everything, she was super popular. And I, I guess I have more of an appreciation for her, or at least uh, empathy for her. And I think, you know, the book is important for a lot of different reasons. But I was never a Britney Spears fan. And in fact, as a, a singer myself and a more like legit singer, you know, like classical singer, I it, it made me really mad because I thought like Britney Spears can't sing and she's only popular because she's pretty. And if I was pretty, I would be Britney Spears, but not. And, you know, obviously I see the legitimacy to her talent and her appeal and everything as an adult now. But I, as a teenager, I was real salty about it. So anyway, never a huge Britney Spears fan, particularly, but I think her story is a really important one to hear. I think it's absolutely terrible on many levels what ultimately happened to her and the way that uh, women, but all kinds of people are treated in the entertainment industry. And I could talk about it for days because it's a big reason of why I have chosen not to make that my primary source of income and, and be more involved in that world myself uh, because I... I just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, yeah, a lot of give and take there, more give than take, uh, it seems like a lot of times. So it's, it's kind of sad in that sense. Uh, Michelle Williams, the amazing Academy Award winning actress, reads the audiobook. So I'm listening to it that way. But I need to tell you the biggest fangirl moment for me, not a Britney Spears fan necessarily, but I'm going to tell you who I am a huge fan of, and his name is Marty. Thomas. You may not have heard of him, but you should have. So 
Britney Spears talks about being on Star Search when she was a kid with Marty Thomas, when he was also a kid, because I think he's about the same age as her. I did not know that Marty Thomas was on Star Search. I just know him because he's this amazing vocalist and performer that I would go see every week perform at Industry Bar at his diva show in New York City. So when I lived in New York, I would go see Marty Thomas every single week. I met up with him a couple times. One time he watched my YouTube reel of like a cabaret that I did. And he told me that my voice was amazing. I'm pretty sure it was around Thanksgiving time. So it's probably going to come up in my memories soon and I'll like share it and geek out all over again. But he's an incredible performer. I had no idea that his paths had crossed with Britney so early on in both of their careers. But Oh my gosh, the fact that I was like, I'm I'm listening to this Britney Spears memoir and like Marty Thomas is like my Britney Spears. So Marty, I love you. If you don't know who Marty Thomas is, you should Google him because his voice is sick and he has so many amazing covers and has done a lot of uh, great recordings of up and coming composers and stuff like that. So wow, that was my favorite part of it. But it is an interesting story. It is, you know, told from her perspective, which is important to hear. So that's what I'm reading. On to what I'm eating. I'm actually going to tell you what I'm not eating at the moment, and that is fast food. Yesterday, I met my parents in the middle of nowhere, uh, in between where I live and where they live, uh, in the middle of Illinois. And I was hungry after dropping my cat off with my dad. And I was like, you know what? I am going to get myself something I don't get very often, and that is some fast food. It's just going to hit the spot. We're just going to fuel up, get it done. It'll be a nice little treat. It was not a treat, folks. I don't get fast food very often, but man, and I hate to call it out. I hate to call it Dairy Queen because it's not really specific to Dairy Queen. It's just like fast food franchises. Like, I don't know. I could, again, I could go off on the spiel for the entire episode about how I feel like the quality of things is just going down in general and the price of it is just going up. But I paid like $10 for four disgustingly salty chicken fingers. I had about 12 cold fries and the worst part, the worst part. I need to speak with someone at Dairy Queen Corporate about whoever decided that they should put two pieces of toast in as a side with this chicken finger meal. I didn't even get a drink and it was almost $10. And the toast, I am talking about it because it was so incredibly repulsive. I have to talk about it. Like, disgusting, soggy, cold. I should have turned it down when it was handed to me like less than 90 seconds after I ordered it at the window. But anyway, what it inspired me to do is we are going to be traveling on Wednesday. And then again, on Saturday, we'll drive home. And it's a, it's a long travel day. It's about seven hours or so in the car. So we are not going to eat fast food. And my husband very much feels the same way as I do about this. Like we have the same experience with it because we do eat at home most of the time. And it's, we've just not had a lot of great experiences with it recently. Doesn't make you feel real good. And you know, you just want to save up that space and be feeling good for all the good Thanksgiving food. So I'm going to make some pulled chicken in our instant pot and make us little pulled chicken sandwiches. We got some carrots, some cucumbers, some guac, guacamole cups. We're going to take, and we're going to pack our lunch so that we don't have to eat fast food on the way to Ohio. Yeah, so uh, that's what I'm what I'm eating, and more so what I'm not eating. And we'll talk a lot more about food as we get towards the end of the episode. Here, I've got some fun, unique recipes to talk about. But here's what's on the playlist this week, you guys. And this is very helpfully curated by you because I got to thinking. Okay, we we talked about a couple weeks ago about how is it time to listen to Christmas music yet? Is it time to decorate all this good stuff? And of course, there's some debate about that. But I think the debate ends after Thanksgiving, right? Like Thanksgiving happens, Thanksgiving is over, and then everyone is like, okay, it's Christmas. We can get on the same page here. Or it is the holiday, like the Christmas holiday season of whatever holiday you celebrate in December. So I thought it would be a great time to talk about the first Christmas song that you're going to listen to. Maybe you've already listened to it. I mean, I've already listened to plenty myself. Uh, my friend Megan actually mentioned 
Like she starts listening to Christmas music like November 1st, but she won't force anybody else to. Like she just does, you know, like in her car, doesn't force it on anybody else. And then, you know, after Thanksgiving, then she's like, I'm playing it in the office. Like I'm playing it at home. It's happening. Like if you're coming over for drinks, we're listening to Christmas music. So I thought that was a really good take. And Megan is actually going to be on the show soon to do kind of a, a New Year's episode with us about things that like annoying things people do and how they maybe could stop doing them. And we'll give them some better suggestions. It's kind of like a kind of like a resolution <laughs> type thing. But anyway, we'll talk more about that soon. But I thought Megan had a very good take on that as well. So I'm not forcing my Christmas music on you until this week. And this week I am. And here's what we're listening to. So these are the songs kind of crowdsourced from a number of different places and got the first Christmas song of the season. Doesn't necessarily have to be like your all-time favorite. I have a really hard time with all-time favorites. I just could never pick one of anything. So didn't want to force that on you. But what is the song that you're like, okay, it's it's the Christmas season. I can listen to this song now and I love this song. So I'm so excited to listen to it. Or it's just the one like really makes you feel like, yeah, it's Christmas time. And there was a lot of crossover. These were all pretty unanimous, if you will. We had a lot of good other ones as well, but these were the ones that, that by far were repeated by many of you. So here's our top five first Christmas songs. Number one is It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Absolutely. That is just, it's iconic. It's classic. And of course, we're giving you the specific version here too, because there's a lot of different versions of all different types of Christmas songs. But the Andy Williams, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Mm. Classic Christmas. It's on. Number two, these are in no particular order, by the way. Number two is you guessed it. All I want for Christmas is you by Mariah Carey. Love it or hate it. I'm sorry. We all love it. Like maybe you get sick of it because yes, it's overdone. It's overplayed like many things in this world, but it is amazing. And there's a reason why it's like the most popular Christmas song ever. And nobody does it like Mariah Carey, my queen. Number three, this one was kind of a surprise. Underneath the Tree by Kelly Clarkson. A lot of you love that Kelly Clarkson Christmas. And I could not agree more. Her entire Christmas album is really good. She also has been doing a Christmas special the last couple of years that is fabulous. She has a lot of great guests. But yeah, I mean, obviously Kelly Clarkson is amazing. And she's written some really beautiful and catchy Christmas tunes as well. So Underneath the Tree, check it out. It's time. Number four is I had a trouble. I had some trouble with the version of this song because I got a lot of different versions, but the song was clear, a clear winner. And that is Little Drummer Boy. I was kind of surprised by this one, to be honest, by how many of you love Little Drummer Boy. I'm going to mention particularly the Bob Seger version of Little Drummer Boy because I think that's my less embarrassing favorite version of Little Drummer Boy. I was asking uh, my Token Braves fan on Twitter, Rachel, because she she said she loves the song. And I was like, okay, what version of this song? And she was like, oh, I'm in this corral and we're doing this beautiful version at our concert. And I was like, oh, so like some beautiful, classic, legit version. Yeah, no, I like the Justin Bieber and Busta Rhymes version also. So, you know, different takes, classic tune. Check them all out. Number five, okay, our last one on our top five first Christmas songs to listen to is The Christmas Eve Sarajevo by Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Oh, yeah. A lot of people said they like listening to instrumental Christmas music, and this, I think, is probably the most iconic, popular, just like go-to, it's time, crank it up. I have a special spot in my heart for this song because when I taught a, a rowing class a few years ago around Christmas, I did this song for sprints. And I think I did probably like some techno version of it. I don't know. But it was like it was the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. It was just like a remix of it. And oh, it was sick. I think I have a video of people like doing sprints to it. And then, you know, it comes down and they're like recovering and 
it was it was a moment. It was a holiday moment in time. So that's definitely a very good one. That's your, that's your top five. There you go. I do have some honorable mentions for me personally, which are very odd ones that maybe you haven't even heard. But uh, David Archuleta, did he win American Idol? I think so. Former American Idol winner. He has a song called Melodies of Christmas. I love it. It is one of my favorites. My other maybe favorite holiday song, and it's sad kind of, so I feel weird saying it's my favorite, but I love it so, so much, and I could listen to it over and over again. It is called Same Old Lang Syne, and it is by Dan Fogelberg. It is a story song. Dan Fogelberg also grew up in central Illinois, not far from where I grew up, actually home of Wesley McKinney of Validity. So Dan Fogelberg, another great artist, Wesley McKinney, they're all obviously born and bred in that same area. But that song is so beautiful. I definitely love that it's a story song. I just love story songs. It's the, the musical theater nerd in me. But check that one out if you haven't heard it. It's gorgeous. I wanted to also mention before we move on down the report, a couple Christmas albums, because some of you recommended Christmas albums, and there there are a couple of them that I checked out that I had not listened to yet, and they're, they're worth mentioning. They're worth a shout out here. The first one that I want to mention is actually one that my brother and I wore the hell out of this album. I remember playing this on our big old stereo system in the basement of the house that I grew up in. And it's got this red cover. It's called A Very Special Christmas. It is a variety of artists, Pointer Sisters, John Mellencamp, Whitney Houston, Madonna, Brian Adams, uh, Sting, Run DMC. Oh, man, it is it is full of bangers and iconic versions of iconic songs. So check that out. The album, it's on Spotify. I also, you know, kind of gave it up that I do enjoy Justin Bieber's Christmas album. I'm I'm not necessarily a believer. My my little sister and my little cousins uh have been believers. But his Christmas album is good, y'all. It's good. It's fun. So, you know, uh Christmas Love, I think is my favorite Justin Bieber Christmas song. But the whole album is it's really nice. Boys to Men is on it. Usher is on it. Come on. Also, I'd be remiss to not mention that Cher has come out with a Christmas album this year, and it is called, wait for it, Christmas. Yes, Cher's Christmas album is called Christmas. Nonetheless, it has amazing versions of many songs you will know, and there's also a new song called DJ Play a Christmas Song. It is so iconic, Cher. I hate to admit that I absolutely freaking love it, and you should check it out. The other one that I want to mention uh, that these are the two that were recommended to me from y'all is Alanis Morissette's Last Christmas album. She just came out with a Christmas album. Her voice is incredible. Her versions are so unique and awesome. And then the Christmas Jazz, Instrumental Jazz for the Holidays album was recommended to me by our Locked On Twins podcast host. So shout out. Thank you for that. I have been listening to it pretty much since you tweeted it to me because it's just amazing to have on in the background. It like sets the tone, sets the season. It would be great background music for, you know, Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner. It's time. It's time. Break it out. I listened to it in the car when I was driving back and forth the other day because it just like keeps you chill, calmed my cat down. It's lovely. All right, let's move on down this report to my obsession for the week. And that is, I think, the same thing you're all obsessing over. I hope you haven't forgotten already. Shohei Otani and his dog. Yes, if you did not see it, Shohei Otani unanimously won the AL MVP for 2023. Duh, he's amazing. He's a unicorn. But as if we needed to make everyone a bigger Shohei Otani fan, he was sitting there not with 20 of his family members, but with his dog who he dressed up and gave a high five to when he accepted his MVP award. I legitimately like slept better knowing that Shohei Otani is a dog person. I, I really did. Like, of course he is. Ugh. So anyway, you've seen it. You love it. I've shared it on all of the socials. But if you haven't seen it, go look at it because I'm not over it. I'm going to recommend, here's what I'm going to recommend this week for the report. 
I don't want to spend too much time. I don't want to get on my soapbox about this, but I'm going to recommend that you eat all day on Thanksgiving. It is common, maybe not as common as it used to be. I don't know. I just remember so many people being like, I'm not going to eat all day. And, you know, I'm not going to eat until like three or four o'clock whenever you eat thanks the Thanksgiving meal as if you could eat more. I guess like, I don't know if you feel like you can physically eat more or you just can allow yourself to eat more because you're like, I haven't had any calories yet today. Either way, this is a terrible idea because one, if you haven't eaten already, your stomach literally shrinks and it happens pretty quickly. So I, I'm sure you've noticed when you're really hungry and you eat, you actually can't eat as much or you don't need to eat as much until you feel full. So it doesn't work from that perspective, but it also just like really screws your metabolism up to do that. Again, not here to get super nerdy and get into detail about it. I think we're going to have a nutritionist on the show pretty soon. So we'll talk to her about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, balance out your macros, if anything. If you're like, oh man, I'm going to be eating a lot more carbs than I normally do. Like whatever, have a low carb breakfast or, you know, balance it out that way. But drink a lot of water and eat all day. Like just don't wait until midday or the end of the day to eat. Treat yourself at least all day and balance is everything is what it's really all about. The last line here on the report is of course T for treat. And what I'm going to encourage you to treat yourself to this week is some you time. As we get into the holiday season, it can be hard to take some time for yourself, whether you're you know, entertaining family and friends, or you're traveling, or you're busy with the kids. There's so much going on. So plan it right now. You know, Thanksgiving is a couple days from now. You've probably got your holiday plans in place. So see that little light at the end of the tunnel. Like, obviously, that's all great and fun. But sometimes we just need, even if it's an hour, to take a bath or sit and read or do something. Like, try to carve out this little window of time you can take some time for you. That's what I'm, I'm going to recommend you treat yourself to. Well, not too many treats for these non-tendered players. And we're going to move right into the non-tender deadline and a little free agent roundup for you. So first things first, we talked about how the non-tender deadline was coming up. What is the non-tender deadline? It is when teams can release players who are arbitration eligible that they are not interested in offering the arbitration level contracts to. And it also means that they are not going to trade for them. They have basically are saying, you know, you are not of this value to us for a trade and we're not going to offer you a contract. So you go be free and try to find somewhere else to play. So it's not exactly like the best thing to be non-tendered. It's probably not a great feeling, but there are also plenty of players who have been non-tendered and have come back and had amazing parts of their career. Lest we forget that Cody Bellinger was non-tendered this time last year by the Dodgers. So he's a great example of someone who is now he's going to get a big ass free agent contract this year, right? Adolis Garcia. I know we talked a lot during the World Series about how Adolis Garcia was non-tendered by the Cardinals, nonetheless. Uh, but you know, they, it does by no means means these players are done. It just means they were not a fit within their organization. We're kind of kind of we're going to go through a few of them here, some more notable ones that you will likely see signed and and making some free agent moves here and maybe sooner rather than later sometimes uh these guys get picked up pretty quickly especially if if we weren't necessarily expecting to see them non-tendered like the first one we're going to talk about Brandon Woodruff of the Milwaukee Brewers I think was the biggest headline or like the biggest surprise for everybody that you might have seen Brandon Woodruff is only 31 years old. His arbitration projection is $11.6 million for the 2024 season. And obviously Woodruff is a pitcher who is worth $11.6 million, right? He's a two-time All-Star. He's a 3.1 career ERA, which I believe is the best in Brewers history, like for the amount of innings that he's thrown. Not necessarily a non-tender that you saw coming, but here's what's going on. 
Big Wu is recovering from shoulder surgery that is an estimated recovery of anywhere between 6 to 18 months. Well, that'll do it. 6 to 18 months. Man, that's that's hard to plan for and I'm sure depending on who you talk to, they're getting different takes on that, but the Brewers are simply not in a position to invest in his recovery and wait out his return. So, he is now on the open market for a team who can and and certainly many teams who will be willing to do that. There are certain organizations that do this better than others in terms of investing and betting on players recovering from injury. But again, teams put their value and their resources in different places. So there are teams that have a medical staff that is more equipped. And, and lucky for Big Woo, he now has some say and some control over how and when that happens. So that's the good news for him. We're going to look for a deal for probably a few million this year. He will get a smaller deal for this year, knowing that like at best he's going to play in the last month or so of the season. But it, that will also include a huge increase for the second year of the deal with a team of the likes of the Dodgers. I hate to say it, but they would be the most likely in my mind. They have done this with many players. They are obviously well equipped to do it. But many teams are going to be very interested in this opportunity. He also seems like a genuinely great guy and a great teammate. So he he won't be on the open market for too long if he doesn't want to be. Nick Senzel is another interesting one. He is 28 years old. His arbitration projection was $3 million with the Reds. And Senzel is a very versatile out, or outfielder. And then he also plays second and third base. He has never particularly had a ton of success at the plate in the big league level, which is kind of what's gotten him to this point of being non-tendered. But with his speed and versatility, he hits lefties well. We're going to look for him to find a home as a platoon or a part-time player. Somebody's going to pick him up and utilize him well. Moving on down the line, we've got Rowdy Telez, also of the Brewers. Rowdy is 29 years old. He was absolutely loved and adored by fans, and I'm sure the Brewers fans will continue to follow him. His arbitration projection was $5.9 million. Rowdy has power when Rowdy has power. But the thing is that he doesn't always have power. And, and otherwise he can play first base, but like he, he can play, he can play first base is actually the way I should say it, but his bat is what's got him in the bigs still some serious left-handed pop at the plate. And I did hear an interview with him recently on foul territory where he was talking about adjusting his nutrition and he's going to add Pilates into his off season regimen. So I am excited to see what the next chapter will be for Rowdy to Another big left-hander on the market now is Daniel Vogelbach. Oh, I have feelings about him because I was at American Family Field when he was on the Brewers and he hit a grand slam to take the lead away from the Cardinals and ended up winning the game. It was brutal. So like that's all I all the feelings I have really attached to Daniel Vogelbach. Anyway, he was uh, not intended by the Mets. He's 31 years old. His arbitration projection is $2.6 million. He is similar to Rowdy Telez in that he is a left-handed threat at the plate, except for when he's not. He can be streaky, and that really showed in his stats from the first versus the second half. He had a much better second half of the season with the Mets, but, you know, the numbers still tell a story inconsistency. He's also a DH. Like that's, that's what you got him for. And he will find a home with a team who needs his bat, but this could be one to watch for, I think later in the off season, as teams start to fill in their final puzzle pieces, they'll find somebody will find a spot for old Danny V. Kyle Lewis is another one to look for here. He actually spent most of 2023 in AAA with the Diamondbacks, but he's 28 years old. His arbitration projection is 1.61 million. Yeah, this is the guy who was the American League Rookie of the Year with the Mariners in the shortened 2020 season. Since then, he has unfortunately been riddled with injuries. He has really struggled to perform over the past three seasons when he has been healthy. And so he has been in, in AAA for most of this past season. He did have an OPS over 1,000 in, in AAA this past season, but he was mostly a DH. And it looks like he hasn't played center field, which is the position where he won Rookie of the Year 
in 2020. It looks like he really hasn't spent much time in center field since 2021. So that's a bummer. I hope to see someone take a chance on him and, you know, his proven upside when it's been there. And hopefully he'll get an opportunity to play healthy somewhere new. Jacob Stallings is a catcher that we all know. He is 34 years old. His arbitration projection is 3.6 million. He is the 2021 gold glove winning catcher of the Miami Marlins. So the Marlins uh, non-tendered him and he's never been a big offensive production guy, but those defensive metrics. Yeah. Those defensive metrics though, they got him the playing time until they didn't because they weren't holding up. I think that's one of the most interesting things about a lot of these non-tendered players is they have had such upside at moments in time. They just haven't been able to sustain them enough yet for the teams to be willing to continue investing in them or for them to really see them fit into where they're, what they're currently working with. But the catching market is very slim this offseason. Surely there is a spot for Stallings to settle in and rework his defensive magic. And one of the only other catchers on the open market is our very own Andrew Kisner, who was non-tendered by the St. Louis Cardinals this week. Kiz is 28 years old. His arbitration projection is $2 million. I knew that there was going to come a time for the Cardinals and Andrew Kisner to part ways. I was never going to be ready for it. So I am sad about this. It is surprising given how much the Cardinals have relied on him the past few years and obviously how well-liked and valued he is by his teammates and by the organization. But it's not surprising because obviously the Cardinals spent a bunch of money on Wilson Contreras. They plan to bring Yadier Molina back uh, on the coaching staff in some capacity, which you've got to assume will help guide in the catcher's development, among other things. Oh, and also, have you heard of Ivan Herrera? If you haven't, you're about to. Yeah, so we have a stud catcher who tore it up in AAA in 2023. He has spent a handful of games with the big league team, but uh, I hope to see him have you know, great success as he has definitely earned his spot on the big league roster, and it's just it's time to give him that spot. So... While I'm also surprised that they weren't able to find a lucrative trade deal for Andrew Kisner, I would think that he would provide value to a lot of other teams, but maybe there just wasn't a fit. Surely he will find a home that will value him, another team that will value him, and another fan base, I hope, that will value him the way that I I believe he was always undervalued in St. Louis. So I hope he finds a spot where People can cheer for him and he gets to play more regularly and settle in. I, listen, I get that he is no Yadier Molina, but wake up. No one is and no one handles himself with more grace and the kind of spirit that you want on your team than a guy like Andrew Kisner. So he has way more than enough upside on both sides of the ball to be important enough to be a part of the right big league team. And he will. So we'll keep an eye out for him. Another one we're sad to lose is Juan Yepes, um, non-tender by the St. Louis Cardinals, 26 years old. He's not even arbitration eligible yet. So this is kind of a weird one. He was the only player, I think, that was non-tender that was not yet arbitration eligible or the only one that had spent a decent amount of time in the big leagues. But he has another option still to return to the minors, and that's an upside for teams as well as they look to pick him up. I mean, obviously he's blocked as hell in the Cardinals organization, especially considering that he is not a standout defender by any means, but some team is going to give this guy a shot. And I really believe that the best has yet to come for Mr. Yepes. He is another great team player who has just not been given a fair opportunity overall to settle in and make the most of his time in the major leagues. So let's look at this like a free Juan Yepes, shall we? He's been freed, and who knows? I mean, he could be the next Adolis Garcia. After all, he did have the only 2022 postseason RBI for the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> Never forget it. Last non-tendered player we're going to touch on today is Austin Meadows, who is 28 years old. His arbitration projection is $4.3 million for the Detroit Tigers. And man, Austin Meadows is a tough case, you guys. 
He was an all-star infielder in 2019, but he has only played in 42 games over the past two seasons combined, mostly due to anxiety issues. So he has been an above average hitter. He is undoubtedly a guy who has the skill to make a major impact on a team. But where does that skill level sit after these years of uncertainty? And I'm hoping for Meadows that he has taken the time to work through the things that he needs. And if it's the right fit for him, he will certainly be able to find an opportunity to make that impact. Speaking of guys who are going to make an impact, we got to talk about a couple big free agent signings because it's starting. Don't touch it. The stove is hot. The first one we're going to talk about is the really hot one. Aaron Nola. He's back with the Phillies, baby. Aaron Nola, seven years, $172 million with his hometown Phillies. He is a homegrown Phillies player. And it is noted here that the Braves offered six years, $162 million, and the Dodgers offered six years, $165 million. So this is a higher AAV or average annual value. He would get be paying, be getting paid more year over year, but it's less, less money overall. Is Nola really going to pitch for seven more years? The Phillies do not care. Uh, lower AAV is the way to be more team friendly, especially with teams like the Phillies. So we saw a ton of this last year with the shortstop Palooza, and we will continue to teams would rather spend the money over year over year with a lower AAV next year's payroll is, is next year's problem is what it really comes down to. I do love the highlight of Nola taking less money to stay in Philly because it proves that culture matters. So that did come out, you know, obviously he he had some bigger offers and it was reported on that, that he really wanted to stay in Philly and make that a priority. But it's, it's not that it's not about the money. It's just that it's not, it's not about paying him what it's, what he is worth. He is being paid a very fair value, right? It is about establishing the relationship and the environment and showing recognition and value, not just with the dollar sign. Value is value. And it's not always in dollars and cents. The Phillies are the highest vibe team in baseball right now. And they have been for the last couple of years, at least. So their time is coming. They have an amazing core of players that can be invested in as a fan base, which is so exciting. So as much as I'm bummed that the Cardinals missed out on Nola, we love to see a franchise player. It doesn't happen that much anymore because of how competitive these free agent salaries are. But it's pretty cool that the Phillies are showing off how you can make it count and make it happen. And it is worth investing in guys long-term on both sides of free agency. All right, let's talk about it. Let's get down to it. Yeah, the Cardinals, they they made their move today. The offseason is officially on. The Cardinals signed free agent Lance Lynn to a one-year deal plus option. This deal guarantees $10 million in 2024 plus a $1 million buyout option, which means in the second year, if they don't want to keep him on, they'll buy him out for a mil. So guaranteed 11 mil, and it can be worth about 26 million over two years with escalators, meaning incentives. You do this, you get this. Whew. So here's why I was surprised by this. Lance Lynn's personality doesn't exactly fit the Cardinals. He he came up with the Cardinals, right? He was drafted by the Cardinals. He has been with the Cardinals. He was part of that 2011 team. That being said, he's a big personality. He's fierce as hell. He shows his emotion on his sleeve at all times. And, and that is not exactly the Cardinal way. Listen, to some extent, I love to see it. And I think he has a style of veteran leadership that the team could use. So not mad about it. He is entertaining and fun to watch. He is almost 37 years old and he is glaringly not the top of the rotation guy that we have been so kindly and patiently asking Santa for. But 
here's here's what I want to take us back to. We need to calm down, take some deep breaths. Remember how John Mozeliak has consistently said that the Cardinals are looking for two and a half starting pitchers. Well, I pose to you this. What if Lynn is the half? Would would you feel okay about that? And the half meant like a swingman or someone potentially looking to have a bounce back year. I would say Lance Lynn is uh he's looking to have a bounce back year. There's definitely that level of risk involved with him. And that's the thing that we don't like about it, right? The risk. We are ready to see the Cardinals take risks with the money that they are willing to spend, not take the risk that another guy is going to somehow outperform a contract or, to be frank, outperform expectations or outperform what is seemingly written on the wall with a guy like Lance Lynn at that at this point in his career. But that's not the Cardinal way. So here's here's why I wasn't surprised. <laughs> this makes sense for all the same reasons that it doesn't make sense. First of all, Lance Lynn lives close by. He lives in Marion, Illinois. It's like an hour or so into Illinois outside of St. Louis. I have family that lives there. Lovely little place. Super cool that he gets to be close to home. He built a new pitching tunnel in his house. Sweet. He's a family man. We love it. He started with the Cardinals, so he is familiar with the territory. There's a lot of the same people in the organization that he'll be working with. And while in his best seasons, he has been exactly what the Cardinals needed. He strikes out a lot of guys. Uh, he's going to be 37 years old at the beginning of the season. He had a 6.47 ERA with the White Sox in the 21 games that he pitched in for them last season. He had a 4.36 ERA with the Dodgers in the 11 games after he was traded. And really it's it's just the way that it hits more than anything i keep telling myself if this signing happens and the cardinals had already signed yamamoto and sunny gray or traded for tyler glass now like if we already had two other guys who we were pretty pumped about would we feel completely different about this hell yes we would but timing is everything i'm sure it wasn't ideal for the cardinals to do this uh optically either but you know what if you've got to pick optics over what's right when the timing is right and they had to get that done with Lynn that's the least of their worries at that point so I am hoping we will look back at this now by the end of the offseason and say like okay they knew then what we did not know and it all makes sense and we've all made peace with it so I know it screams that like he has the potential to be one of the big two starting pitchers that that Mo has stated time and time again that he's actually gunning for. But I think we need to stay positive and hope that he is the half move for the Cardinals. I think that genuinely only because it has to be the ultimate goal, right? I don't think it's a case of them not wanting to get those other big deals done it will only be the cases if, if they cannot get them done. And that's also important to remember, right? Like that it is every contract is a two-way street. So I choose to believe that they will be actively competitive for these top tier pitchers. I have to, because I know that that's what they really need to turn the corner and, and to be competitive at this point. But it is a very competitive market and both both sides have to be on board. You can make the best offer and still not make the deal, as happened with Aaron Nola. Anyway, Lance Lynn. Love the personality. Glad to have him back. So stop with this negativity online, you guys. We don't want Lance to feel like we don't want him. It's not his fault. Everything else on the team is a mess. Glad to have him back in some regard. He's going he's gonna to eat innings, but will he help us win? And we can only wait to see for that. Other big news from Cardinal Nation today is that Daniel Descalzo is the new Cardinals bench coach. It is full-on reunion season. Yeah. Joe McEwing, who was the bench coach last season, he was hired in, remember, real quick when Matt Holliday was like, I'm bench coach. Just kidding, I'm not. So Joe McEwing came in, great baseball guy. He is now going to be special assistant to John Mozeliak, so he's sticking around just in a different capacity. This is a fun one. 
Classic Cardinals nostalgia tour continues. Yachty and Wayne are gone. Alberts rode off into the sunset, but we've still got that nostalgia. Mm. But in all seriousness, Descalzo is hot off winning the pennant as a special assistant in the baseball ops department for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he is sure to be an impactful voice and presence as the Cardinals continue to build out their coaching staff for 2024. Whew. All right, we're gonna we're gonna keep it hot in here, but we're gonna switch gears and talk about what else is hot on the stove, and that's the Thanksgiving stove. It is Thanksgiving week. We're gonna wrap things up with talking about some of the things that I absolutely love about Thanksgiving and maybe some fun recipes to try. But I love spending Thanksgiving with family, of course, and I'm very much looking forward to heading to the mythical land of Ohio this week to spend the holidays with my husband's family. But some of my favorite Thanksgiving memories are actually from years that I was away from my family when I was living in New York City. I would make a point to come home for Christmas, but I couldn't usually make it home for, for both. And, you know, Christmas was prioritized. I could spend a little more time away. But that means that I was in New York for Thanksgiving. I was very fortunate to have made close friends who became family there and hosted us for like the loveliest and most festive of times. The first year that I lived there, I moved in September and my brother and sister actually came out to visit and spend Thanksgiving with me and do all the quintessential New York City Thanksgiving and holiday things. I'm pretty sure I was trying to remember how we ate because we definitely cooked like a Thanksgiving meal at our apartment, but we had like a little tiny round <laughs> kitchen table that like three of us could barely sit at. We had a really long big coffee table. So I think we sat in the living room and we ate Thanksgiving dinner around our coffee table. Like we sat on the floor and ate on our coffee table, but we were really, really proud of ourselves for putting that, that meal together. I think I was like 22 years old. Whew. Anyway, we did the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade and we went to Macy's at midnight for black Friday shopping. It was exhausting and magical. I wanted to share this uh, video that I have. Let's see if I can pull it up. It's so quick and like, it's going to be loud and annoying probably a little bit, but I think it's still funny and entertaining. So <laughs> this is the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade. Like if you have not gone, uh, if you get the opportunity to, I think it's fun and special for anyone and everyone to do it once, like give it a go. We were lucky enough to get a spot near the end where Santa is coming by right before he turns the corner to go in front of the big Believe sign and Macy's and you see him on TV. And this is me and my friend Megan. I think we were probably like 24, 25 years old at this point. Uh, so excited. Santa! Santa, it's me! <laughs> Santa, it's me! Oh, there's nothing like Santa coming back to Macy's for the holiday season. That's when you really know, right? So anyway, I, I always think about my friend Harlan this time of year who is no longer with us, but he hosted some of my favorite Thanksgivings um, on the Upper West Side with bacon-wrapped Brussels sprouts. That was his like iconic dish. And he got Megan to try Brussels sprouts and actually like Brussels sprouts. And he always made like a variety of the best and most creative festive cocktails that I have ever had. Like I can remember, have this like core memory, this visceral reaction of that feeling of anticipation and excitement of waiting to finish work on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving so that we could start the festivities. So always raising a glass in his honor this time of year. And one of the other really cool things that he introduced me to was the behind the scenes of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The balloons get filled up and prepped in the, the 70s. Like if New York is on a grid and all of the streets are numbered, right? So like near the, the 70s streets near Columbus Circle the day before the parade, they fill them all up there. But then they all hang and float anywhere between like the 70s and the 90s along the west side of Central Park for the whole night before the parade. And it's so cool to see them all like lined up and chilling out. And Harlan lived right there on 82nd outside of Central Park. So it was a perfect place to get a sneak peek of the parade setup and feel like right in the middle of all of the holiday action. 
Do you watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? It was always one of my favorites to watch growing up. That was, you know, the start of every Thanksgiving Day. And like I said, I would recommend anyone give it a go. It seems, you know, like like it would be stressful. And I'm sure <laughs> I'm thinking like, mm, it's probably been like 10 years since I went. If I went now, maybe I would be like, oh my God, get me out of here. But I remember it being surprisingly calm. It's very well organized. Like New York City is not new to crowd control and doing this kind of thing. So they have it very well organized, clean, safe, well-kept. Like you can get into Starbucks and go to the bathroom when you need to. It's not like New Year's Eve where you need to wear a diaper, like none of that. So I remember it being, you know, overall very enjoyable. And I think the thing I was very pleasantly surprised by was that because it's the holiday season, even though everyone's up super early and out and trying to get their spot, like everybody's really kind and, and in a good mood for the most part. So that makes it that much better. Wanted to tell you uh, a few fun things about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade that I learned today that I thought was was pretty cool. Obviously, it started uh, at Macy's, but Macy's is the largest store in the world, it's the largest department store in the world. And I guess this expansion happened in the early 1900s that officially made it the the world's largest store, an entire city block with more than 1 million square feet of retail space. So the parade started in celebration when immigrant employees organized a Christmas parade in 1924. And initially it just featured like floats, bands, and animals from the Central Park Zoo and over 10,000 onlookers. So that is how the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade was born. It also started way up at 145th Street. Now it does not start up nearly that far. I don't, they must have walked a lot further. Anyway, the parade always concluded with Santa Claus and the unveiling of the store's Christmas windows. Three years later, the, the Christmas parade, it was originally called the Macy's Christmas Parade. It was renamed the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. The first balloon ever in the parade, believe it or not, was Felix the Cat. Yeah, the black cat. He was the first ever balloon in 1927. And back then, he was not filled with helium, but he was filled with air and he had to be held up with stilts because he, you know, he didn't just have any kind of flamboyancy on his own. He actually made a celebratory appearance in the parade for its 90th year in 2016. And once again, he was filled with hot air or filled with hot air. I mean, it was probably cold air because it was cold. He was filled with air. And supported by stilts. The parade was actually canceled for a few years during the early 40s during World War II because there was not enough helium or rubber to make the balloons. The balloons actually used to be released. This was crazy. This blew my mind. They used to be released at the end of the parade and they would just land somewhere in Long Island and people would like go after them and try to find them as souvenirs. That sounds safe and good for the environment. Obviously not, but that tradition ultimately came to an end when one of the balloons got stuck in the propeller of a small plane and almost took the plane down. So they were like, that, that can't happen. We're going to stop that. And so now today they are actually housed in a former Tootsie Roll factory in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is just across the river from New York City. And this is where they're created. They're created in the Macy's Parade studio. And then they are returned back there immediately after the parade. Now, I know there's a lot of handlers for all of the balloons, but I think I just thought that they were like volunteers, like you could sign up to do it. I'm not sure why I never looked into it, but each balloon needs around 90 handlers. So in all, there's like 2,000 to 3,000 balloon handlers every year in the parade. There are requirements. These handlers must weigh at least 120 pounds and be in good health. Of those, only a few hundred team leaders are actually required to attend a training. Everybody's invited. You can come, but there's only the team leaders that actually have to go to training, to practice handling the big balloons. And then those leaders become like the pilot, the captain, the, the driver of the balloon. And they hold, hold the ropes to guide the balloons. And obviously they're all dressed in outfits that coordinate with their balloons 
And each balloon is also tethered by two 800-pound utility vehicles. So they've got them locked down. Uh, So apart from the performing talent, all other parade participants, such as the balloon handlers, are Macy's employees or their families or friends. So you got to have an in with Macy's if you want to be a balloon holder. There you go. On Thanksgiving Eve, I kind of already mentioned this, but you can head over to West 72nd Street and Columbus Avenue to watch all the giant balloons get inflated with helium. And this event is almost as popular as the parade itself. I tell you what, I never went right there at 72nd and Columbus, but like I said, I was about 10 blocks north of there. Not crowded, not popular. Nobody's thinking about walking up. (laughs) Obviously, all the balloons aren't right at 72nd Street, so... So check it out if you are in New York City around this time of year or, you know, get ready to watch it because it's a great way to start the day. It's just a really fun, lovely tradition. The next thing that I wrote on my outline here is Black Friday is dead. But that's literally all I wrote is Black Friday is dead. So, yeah, I used to go to Macy's at midnight when I lived in New York and I would always have like a specific thing, not a gift, but like a specific thing that I was going to get a really good deal on. One year I got a juicer. I think that was the first year. I have this picture of me holding up my juicer. I got a really good coat one year. Really nice coat. Really good deal on it. But yeah, no. Anyway, I don't have time to to go off on this right now. But no, that it's dead. It doesn't happen anymore. There's a lot of reasons for it. Online shopping, the pandemic. But ultimately, like nobody focuses on the one day deals anymore. It's like we're going to make the whole month Black Friday. The whole holiday shopping season is what we're looking to capitalize on. And yeah, I don't know. I guess I just wouldn't like hold your breath for Black Friday because I think everything is just inflated in price and then they bring it back down to like a reasonable price for the holiday season to try to get you to buy more. But I don't really know. I just know that like at one point in my life, this was really fun and now it's not. So Black Friday is dead. You heard it here first. The last thing that we're going to talk about tonight is some unique Thanksgiving dishes because I really wanted to talk about Thanksgiving food. But what I realized when I was thinking about it was that I associate Thanksgiving dishes with certain family members of like who brings them to Thanksgiving, right? Do you associate dishes with certain family members? Uncle Steve brings the green bean casserole and Kelly makes the best deviled eggs. So I want to be associated with some holiday dish. But here's the thing, like, I'm not going to make a classic, like better than somebody else. So I decided that I need to have like a unique dish that that I claim as my own, maybe a twist on a classic, but like it needs to be different. So I'm going to have to work on this for a few years. But here are some that I found, and I think are going to be fun to try out. I'm going to link the recipes in the show notes here. So do not worry as I'm just going to kind of read through them and tell you about them. And then you can find the ones that you fancy that sound good to you in the old show notes. So for appetizers, we're going to try some roasted pumpkin and goat cheese crostini. Yeah. Like little, you know, little Italian bread with some roasted pumpkin and goat cheese and basil on it. Oh man. The other appetizer, which I guess this could be actually like a side or part of a main dish, but also an appetizer is cranberry jalapeno relish. Yeah, we all love a good cranberry sauce, or do we? I don't know. This recipe actually says that it was created because this woman's husband did not like regular cranberry sauce, and she made this, and he loved it. So I just think that sounds amazing. I love anything with jalapeno, and I think this would be a great little topper for some turkey might be great to spread on a turkey sandwich you know the day after thanksgiving when you make those sandwiches check it couple sides here for you Mm, this is a good good twist on a classic we've got sweet potato streusel casserole with coconuts okay listen if you're gonna make sweet potatoes with a boatload of sugar and butter in them you might as well just make it streusel and add some coconut because it sounds delicious. So this is one where I'm like, okay, sweet potato casserole, classic, but the streusel and the coconut make it like unique enough that maybe, maybe this could be my thing, maybe. But you gotta like coconut. And I feel like there's a lot of people that don't like coconut. 
I don't know. If you try this one, let me know. But this is one I definitely want to give a go because personally, I love coconut and I would enjoy it. Our second side idea is apple stuffed acorn squash. I am an acorn squash truther, y'all. If you haven't had acorn squash, they're actually really easy to bake. You just buy it at the store whole. The hardest thing is cutting it. I was really proud of myself when I figured out how to cut an acorn squash a few months ago. Found a good YouTube video. So they're out there. Don't be afraid. If I can do it, you can do it. And that is how I feel actually about all these, all these recipes, I should point out. I picked ones. I found ones that I was like, if I can make this, these directions are pretty simple. I'm no chef by any means. My husband is a great cook. He's very instinctual with it. I am very good at following directions though. And so if you can follow directions, these are simple enough, but special as well. So what's better than a nice baked acorn squash with like apples and cinnamon and stuff in it? It's like a, it's like a potato alternative, but it's also sweet, you know, like those sweet potato casseroles. I thought that sounded really good. You could even put like, you could make this like a main dish for dinner or something too, with like some sausage or something in it. I'm definitely going to try that one. Couple main dish ideas for you. This one is obviously a twist on on the classic turkey breast, but this recipe for cranberry stuffed turkey breast is a great way to spruce up turkey for a smaller group. So it's like you have two smaller turkey breasts and the recipe tells you how to cook up a stuffing and and stuff the cranberry sauce in there and everything and it just it the, the picture looks really good, so you might want to try that one out. Stuffed turkey sounds great to me. The second one might be a great vegetarian alternative. It is butternut squash lasagna. This recipe actually calls for sausage in it, but obviously that could very easily be left out. And again, squash, another fall food, but kind of a, an overlooked flavor, maybe a sleeper, a sleeper squash. <laughs> you need to pull it out and try it this Thanksgiving or this holiday season. Let's talk about a couple drinks and desserts that you can add to your menu to get it done tonight. I'm going to suggest this apple pie shot for you as just a fun and little festive way to cheers as this could be your dessert, right? It is vodka, apple cider, and whipped cream. And I think there's maybe like some caramel sauce if you want to really make it fancy. There's something else on there. You can check out the recipe, but like, again, looks really pretty and cute and special, but it's simple and it might just be a really fun and festive way to top off the night after dinner. The second one is, I guess, kind of like a mocktail. It's non-alcoholic. It is vanilla rosemary lemonade. So nice and refreshing. This is fresh squeezed lemonade. So you're going to have to like take some time, 25 to 30 lemons here, but you get one of those like lemon pressers. We have one because we put lemon and lime in our, our water all the time. Super easy. It actually wouldn't take you very long at all. And then this recipe talks you through how to make the syrup with the vanilla bean and rosemary. And again, you do that on the stove. But all in all, make a batch of this. Put it in, you know, one of those little coolers and have people have a special beverage to have while they're waiting for their meal. Love it. Might be a nice little breakfast beverage as well. Desserts here to round things out. Okay, this is one I'm definitely going to try. Sweet potato cupcakes with marshmallow frosting. Uh, sweet potatoes, huge fan. Love the idea of making them into something baked like a cupcake. And the marshmallow frosting looks amazing. Like I will probably not be able to make it look that pretty, but I am going to try. So check that out. I think that would be a great alternative if you're like not a big pie fan, which like what's wrong with you, but fine. Or, you know, if you just want to make something that's different, Pe not a lot of people bring in cupcakes to Thanksgiving, you know? The second one is apple cider donut cake. Okay, this looks and just sounds amazing. Obviously, it's a great time of year to keep that apple cider flavor and theme going. It's a bunt cake. So... That makes it a little bit easier to cook it and make it look like fancy, kind of has like the donut texture and shape to it, but you just you cook it in the bunt pan. Ah, oh, that one looks fun too. I'm going to have to try both of those desserts 
sooner or later. So keep an eye out on the IG peace.love.baseball on Instagram. I'll, I'll post pictures <laughs> next to the pictures <laughs> on these recipes and we'll see, we'll see how close I can make it look. And more importantly, how close I can make it taste to how delicious I'm sure that all of these recipes will taste. So those are in the show notes for you. Let me know if you try any of them out and I will keep you updated as well. But have an amazing, safe, wonderful, delicious Thanksgiving week. The stove is gonna stay hot all week long in Major League Baseball, no doubt. So do not forget to subscribe on YouTube or on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave a five-star rating. You can uh, leave a nice review if you feel like it. That would be so nice. And follow along on Twitter at KbirdTweets, on Instagram, like I just mentioned, at peace.love.baseball, and on our Facebook page, Peace, Love, and Baseball. Hey, I will see you next week for more peace, love, and baseball. You know it.